You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. If you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians is in the New Testament, um, one of the writings of Paul's very much toward the end of the Bible. Colossians chapter 1. And while you're doing that, let me just remind you of a couple things. Uh, again, we are having our Closer Look class uh, after church today, and we um, thank you for coming. Those who are coming to find out about our church, we appreciate you coming, and, and we'll have a great lunch there for you. Um, also, we have the Closer Look books that have been done, which we're really excited about. Does anybody have one on? I want to hold it up. Maybe we can. We have one in the back there. Thank you so much. Just wave that around. But they're, they're all over everybody please take one on the way out. Our intention was for everybody in our church or active in our church um, or anybody who visits our church to be able to get one. And what this book does, it's, it's, it's easy to read. It'll take you about 30 to 40 minutes to go through the whole thing. But it gives you sort of the biblical basis for what we think about our church, why we do what we do, who we are. And it basically will, there's a brief study on what a church is, we go through three passages in the New Testament that describe a church as, you know, a temple and a, a body, and, and, and it goes through those things and what that means for us. We talk about our theological foundations, and, and as a church that is uh, Protestant and Reformed, the basis of those, the five basic doctrines of that um, and what they are, and it unpacks those for you. And then we go through our church mission statement, which is to honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. So we just give the biblical basis for why Jesus is great and you know, what does it mean to grow spiritually? How do you do that? What does it mean to live authentically? How does the Bible describe living authentically? And then how do we participate in his purposes? And it just goes through that. It's very simple. Um, and we hope you'll be able to, to uh, look through that. And if you're interested in our church, that'll give you some good good information and good background about it. So anyways, uh, those are two things. The other thing I wanted to share with you that uh, is exciting. Last Wednesday, we had a tremendous prayer meeting at the church and had a lot of uh, people come out to pray and, and pray for us. January, the month of January, we make that a very big focus in our church is uh, for 21 days, we fast and pray. It doesn't mean we don't eat food for 21 days, of course, but fasting means you just try to think of something you can do without in just sort of a, a spiritual discipline. And then we encourage everybody to just set prayer goals for yourself personally during those 21 days, during that, the back end of January of, I want to pray this much. I want to spend this much time with the Lord and just to invigorate yourself spiritually and set yourself off in a real good way to start the year. And then also on Wednesday nights, we have a, we want to encourage you to come to our prayer meeting. It's from six o'clock to seven o'clock at our ministry center, which is three blocks that way. It's on Millage. Uh, again, this is the last one this week. I want to encourage everybody, if you've not come, come be a part this week. And we have a tremendous hour of power. We pray, we seek God together, we worship him. And um, it's a great, great thing. And just as a part of this church, it's a very big deal. So I want to encourage you to, to come. Look at Colossians chapter 1. And... Um, 
Again, last week we, we began a series. We're going to go through the book of Colossians in the winter and spring and learn this book real well. We found out a couple things about uh, this book. One, it was written by Paul in probably the early to mid-60s while he was in jail, probably either in Macedonia or Rome. He wrote it from a jail cell, literally suffering, paying the price for the gospel. And he's writing these, these letters to these churches. It was started by one of his students, a guy named Epaphras, who went to uh, Colossae into this region in Greece and started churches and got them going. And so he's writing about seven years, eight years into this church's history. And again, in, in that region, what we do know about them, and not unusual to other regions, but it was extremely true in this region, is the people would be what we would call animist. And that was their pagan religious background. And animist were people who... Uh, were very, had a very heightened sense to the influence of spirits, of uh, evil. Of, you know, and, and if something happened, they would believe a spirit did it. You know, if a tree fell over, it would be a spirit. And then they would sort of interpret what's the spirit saying through that. And, and that's kind of how they oriented themselves. And what this led to is, is a religious outlook called syncretism. And we would almost call it pluralism in our day. But back in those days, every tribe had a deity. And your deity did something. Your deity was the, the god of the wind or he was the god of the whatever. But you had a particular deity that was your god. It was the god over your tribe, over your people that you lived with. And what would happen in time is, well, things aren't going well our, our deity must be offended, so we've got to do something to appease him. And they would do, you know, crazy things. They would sacrifice children sometimes. They would do just bizarre antics to hope to pacify the anger of a deity. And if that didn't work, they figured there was some deity from another tribe that might be influencing them or, or their deity wasn't. They just had all these crazy combobulated ideas, but that was very big in their mind. So a lot of what they would do is just want to get on the good side of as many deity, deities as you could. And, and who wouldn't? You know, I mean, if that's how you thought the world was, you just want to get on the good side of as many deities as you can. And so they, this is how they oriented themselves religiously. They were very pluralistic. And they, they syncretize, they combine different religions off and on. And so when Paul is writing to these people, one thing he wants to drive home to them, he wants to clarify the, the central truth of Christianity. And that is the truth of who Christ is, what he did, and why there is salvation in no other name. There is no other. And he is going to explain that and lay that out to them and, and help them understand that. And so, and, and one thing this means for you and I, I think in our Christian lives, and this is very important, it is amazing to me sometimes in our relationship with God is how big things can be that are Christian and how small Christ can become. A lot of times we just make big deals out of things. It is seminal that you have this view or that view or you do this or you don't. And Christ becomes a very small, minor thing. 
And whether it's politics or political, I've just seen this happen all over and over again. And one of the things I think that, that we need to understand is, that is really, I believe, unique about Christianity, just from a secular viewpoint about religion, as opposed to any other religion, I would say that most religions that I know of, and I don't want to name them and be mean because that wouldn't be politically correct. We wouldn't want to not do that, you know, up here. But I could just, any religion, when you look at the founder of that religion, look at what we know historically true about the founders of religion. What you will see is the religion almost has to detach themselves from that person to even be credible over time. You know, there's there's a religion in America started in the Midwest, not to name any. But literally, they used to have this huge temple in this city, and there was a huge statue of their leader right there in the temple. It was a big deal. Now, if you go there today, that statue is in a basement somewhere, and there's now a statue of Jesus there in their temple. The reason is because we found out a lot historically about that founder. And he's not credible. And in Christianity, it's the exact opposite. The farther we get from Christ, the less credible we become. I tell you, most every religion has to get distance from their founder to be credible today. It's the exact opposite. And so it is very important in Christianity the C-H-R-I-S-T of our religion is capitalized and bold and big and blazing with neon lights. And the I-A-N-T-Y is it's smaller letters. Everybody got that? And this is kind of what Paul's saying to them. So let's, what he's going to do is he's going to really powerfully try to clarify for these people who Christ is. In the first chapter, there's 29 verses. 30 times he mentions the name Christ or an allusion to Christ. In the second chapter, there's 28 verses, excuse me, 24 verses, 25 times he mentions Christ. And and so over and over again, he is trying to drill into them who Christ is, who Christ is, what he did, why this is important. Last week we looked at this and he, he was introducing their faith and he said, I want you to be filled up with the knowledge of his will. And this is what he is going to begin to do. He is going to begin to fill them up with the knowledge of God's will, who God is, and what he is doing through Christ and why it's important. So let's start here. And I want to start in verse 13 because it's the very end of what we looked at last week. And it will lead into to this passage, which is verse 15 through 23. But verse 13 says this, For he, that's Christ, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought into us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Verse 15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things Hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. 
For God was pleased for all his fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm and not moved away from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel which you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and in which I, Paul, became a servant. Let me just do a little bit of what we did last week. Let me walk through this passage, scan it a little bit to you, let you kind of understand what some of this means, what it's talking about. And then I want to make one clear point at the end of it that I think will summarize it. In verse 15, here's how Paul describes Jesus. What does he say there? He is the what? The image of an invisible, of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. Here's how he wants us to understand Jesus. We understand God has these proportions. He's invisible. He's eternal. He's infinite. He is not town. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by space. And he is not bound. He is not contained in a material way. But what if a God who's eternal and infinite and invisible became a temporal, visible, finite, material being? This is what Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. He is a a, a God who is eternal and infinite and immaterial transferred to a plane that is material, limited, and finite. Much the same way, and I want to give you this example. Look on the screen up here. Much the same way when we watch a sporting event on TV. Let me show you a sporting event on TV here. Hopefully it's going. There it is. You probably don't remember or have any recollection of this at all, but at the University of Georgia, we, um, there's a sport we play called football. Maybe you've heard of this thing, but that's from the, that's from the uh, SEC championship game. That's when our great freshman running back, uh, Damari Swift, ran a touch, and that clinched. Do you remember that game? Did everybody see that game? Now, everybody here saw it. There are some people here that were actually at the game in Atlanta. But some of us saw the same game, but we saw, it, we saw the image of that game on a screen. That exact real game that was in Atlanta, in the Georgia Dome, was transferred to an image, to a plane, where you and I could clearly see exactly what was going on. This is who Jesus is. He is the, he's God who is eternal and infinite, immaterial, but he transferred to a plane where you and I can see it and we can feel it and we can get what God is like. He's the image of the invisible God. And he goes on to really clarify what he means by that, just in case we have any doubts about this. In verse 16, he says, for in him all things were created. How many things were created? All. Now look at how many times he uses the word all in this. All things... For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Now, things are either one of two places. Things are either on earth or they are what? They're in the heavens. 
Things are visible or invisible. Listen, if you're not visible, then you are what? You're invisible, but you are one or the other. That's everything. Everything is either visible or invisible. And he goes on and he really clarifies this. Whether powers or thrones, powers, rulers or authorities, those would have been, in those people's minds, that was not political leaders. That was actually spiritual powers that they were captivated by trying to appease. He said all these things were created by him and through him and for him. Everything. Jesus is the God, the invisible, eternal, infinite God, who we could say all things were created by him, for him, through him. All things by him, for him, and through him. And then he goes on in this hymn, and he says, he is before all, th- he is before all things. And in him, verse 17 says, all things hold together. There's a Greek word, and I'm going to mispronounce it for you real quick. It's called synthesis. And I promise you that's mispronounced. But here's what that means. It was a very popular word in Plato and Plato the Stoic schools. And the way the Greeks in the ancient world understood the universe is the universe had a head. Uh, and there was, what we saw in the universe was the body of that head. They understood. They thought the universe was similar dimensions of a body. It had a head. And then what you see is the whole, what we see is the, the body of the universe. And they understood and they knew, and the reason they believed the universe had a head, had a mind, had a brilliance behind it, is because of what they saw. They looked at the created world and they said, there's got to be some kind of brilliant something that is organizing the universe, that has worked all this together. I mean, think about the wonder of creation. Just think of a simple thing. For survival, we breathe in oxygen. We breathe out carbon dioxide. Oxygen is our fuel. Carbon dioxide is our poison. It's our waste. We breathe it out. To plants, they breathe in carbon dioxide, and they breathe out as their waste what? Oxygen. Now, that's a miracle. That You could do it to begin with a miracle, but there's that kind of inner relationship. They, they looked at so many things that they knew were true, not much less what we know are true, the, the wonder of creation, how everything is so spun together, it's so organized, it works so you know, particularly well. And they just said, that word is what he means by all things are, are held together. And he's basically saying the brilliance in the mind and the reason all things hold together is because of the creator, God, and that's who became human in the man Jesus of Nazareth, the one who brilliantly organized and put it all together. And he goes on here, and he continues to say in verse 18, and this is a really powerful verse. He's the head of the body, the church. The head of the body, the church. Now, again, you're in a culture in 60 A.D. and late 50s A.D. where everybody has a tribal deity. You have your own God. And he does something and you're, you're devoted to him. What he is telling us as Christians, as the church, as believers, this is who your head is. 
This is who your tribal deity is. This is who, the, 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 this is who you are alleged to. Here's the one who really calls the shots in your life and all of life. You don't need to turn to anybody else. He's the head. The head created all things. The head, all things were created by him, for him, through him. He's the one that organized creation in this brilliant way. And he's the head of your faith. Not any other tribal deity. And he goes on here and he continues with this thought. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Verse 18, verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Again, he is hammering this point home. God was pleased that all of God's fullness dwelt in this human being named Jesus of Nazareth. Now, let me explain to you what that word fullness means. Kate, if you could bring this up for me. Here is how we understand fullness. This is what this word means in the Greek. Now, I have two cups here, as you can see. One is full of content. The other is, has nothing in it. If I pour the contents of this cup into this cup, this is what fullness means. Everything in this cup goes into this cup. Fullness, fullness. Every drop of God was in Jesus of Nazareth. Every drop, every drop. He was fully, completely. The Nicene Creed says he was God of God, light of light, God of very God. You know, a lot of people think the Trinity is illogical because we say, well, you know, one plus one plus one equals three. But you know what? One times one times one equals, equals one. The Trinity is not adding one more and adding one more. It, was, it, is, it is one from the beginning. And it is that uncreated God coming into, human, coming into our life in this man, Jesus of Nazareth, to bring about a salvation that he promised in the Old Testament. That's who Jesus is. And let's just continue with this. So he goes through this, this whole thing of his deity. And then he shifts and begins to talk about his work on the cross. Verse 19, please for the Father to have all his fullness dwell in him. And verse 20 says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish free from accusation let's kind of look at this real quick and i think there's some real real powerful things in there he talks about the idea of reconciling reconciling means basically that two people that have a social difference that are socially estranged fix what came between them it's very much about relationship and it's sort of in a social sense and he says that in a social sense, relationally, Christ has reconciled us to himself. And you say, well, okay, problems with Jesus. Never did. Thought he was a great guy. 
thought it was wonderful. Well, here's what Paul does in this passage. He tells us what really does estrange us from God. And he uses a word, he says, you know, what it is, it's the hostility in our minds because of our evil behavior. Anybody here ever have evil behavior besides me? It's a very human thing to do, a very human thing to have. And we don't want to equate this, but really what the Bible says is that's because we have a hostile mind toward God. Hostile toward him. And it's kind of very hard for us to really think of ourselves in that way. We just think, make excuses. You know, I was watching, a, Lisa and I went to a movie Friday. We saw the, the movie I, Tanya. And it was an incredible thing to, to watch her mom. And how this woman was a monster, cruel and selfish to the, to the core. At the last scene of her, what she did with her daughter during a real crisis was just incredibly selfish. Like unbelievable. Betraying her daughter, trying to. Yet in her mind, she's just a good old person. I'm not that bad. I'm just trying to help out. You know, that's how you and I are with God. We are literally often that unwilling to accept responsibility for our sin, for our actions, and really own them for what they really are. Here's what Paul's saying. Hey, you are hostile to God in your mind. Engage in evil behavior. But thank God the next verse says, but he reconciled us to himself. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross. And it's a real powerful choice of words he talks about here. How reconciled to God are you and I? How fixed are you? How removed is our sin? How no longer of an issue is it? And it's really powerful the language he uses to describe the state we're in in verse 22. Verse 22 says, But he has reconciled you in Christ's physical body through death in order to present you, you. Everybody say your name out loud just for a second. Lee. Let me do it one more time. Lee. <laughs> one more time. because I want, Lee, I want to drive this home. This is so, this is, this is, I'm telling you there, there are people here, I want to say this, that are struggling with sins. You're struggling with fears. You are, you're a Christian and you're imprisoned. And I'm telling you, this truth will set you free. I know what it is. I know what it is to struggle with sin. I know what it is to struggle with fears. And, and I'm telling you, this truth is the most, this is a powerful truth. When human beings believe this, they, their lives are changed. You know that verse he said there, that he delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is how he does it. This truth. And look at what it says there. He presents you holy in God's sight. Holy in God's sight. Now how many of you wake up this morning and go, man, I am holy in God's sight. Holy. How powerful is that? If we get honest with ourselves, we can believe, yeah, I'm probably pretty bad. I'm pretty estranged from God. But here's what he says. His, his death on the cross, God's spilling blood out for your sins, 
to wash them away is so powerful that no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, we are holy in his sight. Remember years ago, there was a, a dumb movie my wife and I went to called Shallow Howl. Some of you saw the same dumb movie, it sounds like. And it was a guy, it was an actor named Jack Black who starred, and he was a very shallow, typical man, just, you know, into what a girl looked like and very selfish and kind of hedonistic in his viewpoints. And he's on the elevator and he meets Tony Robbins, who's a motivational speaker. And Tony Robbins says some kind of, gives him some advice, somehow these are magic words, and how how changes. And there's this girl who he has seen before who's very unappealing, very unattractive. But now he sees her as, and she looks flawless to him. She just looks flawless. And he just loves her, and he's bending over for backwards for her. And he's like, what, you know, and he just is chasing her around, and he's pursuing her, and he wants to be with her. And his sight got changed. One that was, you know, repulsive in his sight became desirable in his sight. And it changed the way he treated her. And this is what he is somewhat saying about God, is that you are holy in his sight. Instead of being a discarded piece of trash or a child of wrath, you are somebody he pursues and he wants, he likes being with. You're a life he wants to be involved in. It's a totally different thing. You are reconciled to him through his blood, holy in his sight. And he goes on here and he amplifies what he means. What's the next thing he says in verse 22? Holy in his sight, without what? Without a blemish. Without a blemish. Wow. Without a blemish. I remember when I was a teenager, my uh, otherwise handsome face got attacked with acne. (laughs) Really, it wasn't a very, didn't have a lot to work with to begin with, actually, but that happened. And I remember I would go to high school. This was my ninth and tenth grade year. Thankfully, things got better as we went along. But I remember thinking, I just wish these blemishes would be gone. I just want these blemishes off me. What would it be like, I think, to, be, to have no blemish? No blemish. No blemish. What would it be like for you to stand before God with no blemish, no flaw, nothing, nothing, not a mark, nothing repulsive, no grounds to be unacceptable or unappealing. Powerful language. And the last one, he says that you're free from accusation. And that simply means to stand before a legal court, to have somebody pull out the books on you and the judge to say, It's like you committed no crime. One day, you and I, each of us, are going to stand before Almighty God. And to know in your fact that for a fact, you will stand before him because of Christ, but free from an accusation, free from judgment. That is an incredibly empowering truth. And this is who he is. And this is what he does. Great theologian John Stott said one time, the essence of sin 
is man substituting himself for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man aggressively asserts himself and takes the place that belongs only to God. God sacrifices himself and he takes the place that truly belongs to man. That is salvation. It is God sacrificing himself and he takes what we deserve and he removes it and he removes it. God in Christ did not become a religion that you might connect with him through rote and through creed. He didn't come up, become a moral code that you might connect to him through being good. He didn't become a self-help philosophy that you might connect to him through self-improvement. God became human. In Christ, God and man were reconciled in this one beautiful, extraordinary figure in history. And through the sacrifice, through the blood, through his body and the blood shed on the cross, we can be reconciled to God, connected to him. That is the will of God. That is what Paul prays we would fill ourselves with to overflowing. And then he ends up in verse 23, and he just reiterates the importance of it. He says, to continue in your faith, be established and firm, and don't be, amazed, don't be moved away from the hope held in the gospel. What does he say? Hey, get rooted in this. Dig your life, dig your foundation into these truths, who he is and what he did. Powerful things will happen. Your life will never be the same. Things and bondages that are, that are plaguing you now, thoughts that are plaguing you now, habits, they will break. I sure as Jesus is God's son and has been raised from the dead, they will break. You'll be a whole new person. I've seen it happen over and over again, over and over and over again. These truths are so powerful, so transforming. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we, just, we honor your greatness. It is a greatness that is unfathomable, not that you are just a God who creates everything, who thinks everything up. And there's a being in existence that is actually eternal and infinite and immaterial and that is larger than space and who created everything that exists in time and space and matter. We, but that you became a human being like one of us and that you would take our place we have arrogantly taken your place, and your response is to take our place. And in doing so, you literally make us holy in God's sight. You make us without blemish, free from any judgment or accusation. Lord, I pray that you would make that powerful truth so real in our lives, so 
vibrant in our soul. It would affect how we live. It would affect how we think. It affect how we treat one another. And we would really experience the, the outworking of your will in our lives in very, very powerful, profound ways. Lord, we thank you for this great truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.